Hi everybody, welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknism. Chris, how are you doing today? Good, David, and I'm proud to be saying I'm wearing pants for this episode. You're wearing pants? Yep. Well, I am, I am not wearing a shirt, so between the two of us, if you weren't wearing pants, we'd have one fully clothed human being, but one and a half's not bad. Chris, um, on our last episode, we kind of freestyled it. We did a little car talk, which I think was fun, but we decided that we wanted to get back to the kind of novel-like progression of ideas that we had uh, started in Butterfly in Your Mouth and continued up through Needle Nose Pliers. So I thought, uh, well, we thought rather, during our pre-game discussion, that I would just kind of start off with what's going on in my life right now, which, as you know, I moved into a new house recently, and there's just been a sort of ship of Theseus deal going on, where I'm painting everything, I'm replacing things, I took out the the lights that were hanging up and replaced them with fans and, and new bulbs. And, and I was thinking to myself, now it feels more like my place. Right. Does that make sense? Does oh, that make sense absolutely. to you? Absolutely. That, well, that, you know, that's like revision and writing, you know, you gotta, you gotta get your, uh-huh. your hands dirty. Yeah. And I think that this place in particular, the, the previous owners, great people, they were very much into cycling. Uh, when I came into the house, when they still had all of their stuff here, there are about five bikes hanging from the ceiling. And so that left some rather unsightly tire marks on the walls. And I've been looking at those tire marks for the past month, like, you know, going into an obsessive compulsive frenzy about them. And so I finally <laughs> painted over them today and it felt so good to paint over those tire marks. <laughs> if only every, you know, if you could paint over all of the tire marks, the psychic tire marks in our lives, right? I think that's one of the reasons why painting is so satisfying. Mm. Mm, I agree with that. And I think that some people do try to paint over it. That's when you have people who get addicted to Xanax and things like that. People who want to be numb to the world. I think that that's basically what they're doing. But the problem is, is that it tends to bleed through every single time. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's kind of a superficial paint job. You know, it's not really thinking it through. Yeah. Where in the progress, you know, picture are you? Are you... No, I am. I'm still working away. I got my office done. I got half of the living room done today. I'm a maniac who sort of tapes as he goes. I don't like to do the taping all at once. That's also how I write. I can't sit down and do any one thing. So my novels are usually written uh, sort of on the fly where I will outline them a chapter at a time. Um, there's a great quote from, oh gosh, I'm missing the name now. You might know who said this. But a person once said uh, that writing a novel is like uh, driving through the desert with your headlights on. You can only see about 100 feet at a time, but you can make the whole trip that way. Um, oh, yeah. And that's, that's pretty much how I write. I forget who said that. It's going to bother me. Yeah, it's going to bother me, too. Um, um. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yet, have you ever done any renovations on your, on your places? Um, the first house I, I ever owned... I was about your age, and it was the cheapest house on a very pretty street in a rural town in Australia that had two main sources of employment, uh, a bacon factory and a prison. 
And as people know who have ever lived in a prison town, they attract uh, a group of, you know, basically people servicing the drug needs of prisons. And the house I bought had been inhabited by drug dealers who left it absolutely trashed. So there was just weeks of butt-sweating work to be done, pulling out, (laughs) you know, terrible, damp, burnt carpet, just foul-smelling stuff. It took me, I just was working so hard to get finally to the painting stage. And, you know, Mm. I I just was so proud when when I finally finished. And I finished in the living room, and I just collapsed on the floor, exhausted. But I thought to myself, well, here I am. I'm a homeowner. I've made it. I've, I've, I'm a citizen of the world now. And this is my house. And I looked up at the ceiling and just down from the roof, where I'd also just put in a whole bunch of uh, insulation, came this enormous huntsman spider. And, you know, they're the size of your hand. <laughs> And, uh, oh, yeah, I've seen them online. The yeah. folklore is that when they appear like, in the kitchen, which is where they often do, it's going to rain very mm. soon. But I, okay. I looked up at this spider and I thought to myself, you know, this isn't really just my house. <laughs> you know, this is <laughs> having your name mm-hmm. on some mm-hmm. title or deed, you know, really doesn't mean anything. And, and here was an outsider artist, you know, this beautiful spider. Um, and I'm not a big fan of spiders, but I, I dig these ones, you know, because they're just, they're symmetrical and just look, you know, cool. And they're also not dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it, it was mm-hmm. just a reminder that, you know, we're not really owners of anything. We're just all passing through, you know, all travelers, oh, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that reminds me of the house next door, which is completely condemned um, and is set to be demoed soon. Um used to be a very beautiful house, you can tell, but the years have not been kind, and a lot of it was boarded up, and um, I think that the person who bought it thought that he was going to be able to flip it and sell it, and the city came by and said, you are absolutely not going to flip this house. Uh, It's got to be torn down. So there's this empty house, and a few nights ago, I was putting in blinds, and I noticed this teenage boy riding his bike into the backyard, uh, setting his bike down, got a backwards baseball cap on, and I saw him go in through a hole in the house. And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of dangerous. I don't know if he should be doing that. But I I stick to the Oklahoma um, uh, adage of minding my own damn business. Good for you. So I sort of, I, I went back and minded my own damn business. And then later on that night, he had brought his friends back and they were going to town on this thing, smashing out windows kicking out the siding of the house, all this kind of stuff. And so I let the uh, I let the owner of the house know, and he said, well, you know, it's going to be demoed anyway. And I thought, oh, I wonder if he's liable, you know, if they hurt themselves. But again, mind my own business. And I got to say, a bunch of neighborhood kids over the past day or so have made their way to this house. And it's just kind of nice to see kids doing kid stuff again. Can you imagine being that age and finding out there's an abandoned house where you can take a Louisville slugger to, to windows oh, with, with no consequence. Yeah. I mean, it was great. <laughs> no, no screens, not, not a cell phone in sight, no Xbox, no nothing, just kids being kids. And, uh, there was something kind of nice about it. I don't think anybody got hurt. 
hopefully not. So anyhow. Wow. You know, it makes me think it would be sort of cool to uh, plant a little, you know, a mini camera in there and kind of film like the secret life of this doomed house, you know, these last mm-hmm. sort of hauntings of, of young people. Because they're kind of, you know, psychologically, I think they're trying to reclaim something of, of the spirit of that house, which, you know, mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. is sort of a cool thing. I, I don't read that as, as vandalism, exactly. I'm not dismissing the vandalism side, but I, I, can, I can relate to some sort of ceremonial, you know, thing going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of nice for the house. It has residence for the last time, and uh, it's kind of like a human body. You know, when a human body gets to a certain point and a, let's say a virus or something like that, or whatever we want to call viruses these days, gets into the body and starts wreaking havoc, that's it, it feels metaphorically correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get that. I get that. But um, but yeah no so I'm I'm settling into this neighborhood I'm really enjoying it I noticed something very strange about this uh, particular neighborhood which is that um, when you're driving around there are no curbs in anybody's lawn which I thought was very strange most neighborhoods that I've lived in over the course of my life have very kind of prominent curbs this sort of separation between people who are transient and people who live there and there's something about houses being on the level of the street that feels magically significant to me. I've heard, I heard once that every time you walk through a doorway, your mind kind of resets, right? So if you have a grocery list in your head, that's why as soon as you walk out the door, it's gone. If you didn't write it down, <laughs> um, cause you're, you're, you're now completely reset, but there's, yeah, there's something about that, about the lack of curbs that I found very fascinating. That is interesting. Uh, would you call that more of a welcoming, inviting uh, feeling in a neighborhood? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, from a car's perspective, too, you know, you're just you feel more like you are <clears throat> not as shut out. A curb seems to be uh, to keep people, obviously, from driving onto your lawn. Right. <laughs> um, which is great. I mean, that's awesome. But um, I mean, I don't think very many people do that uh, in a malicious sense anyway. So so when I have guests over, yeah, they can just park on my lawn. It's very Oklahoma. That, that is very Oklahoma. Well, it's very, it's very <laughs> a lot of places. I mean, you see that in, uh, you know, parts of, of Vegas, you know, and they're kind of, I don't know, I always feel a, a sort of level of comfort in those, you know, some people might think, oh, cars on lawns, you know, well, I don't want to, you know, buy a house there. But actually, oftentimes, mm-hmm. I've found those people are really cool neighbors. They, you know, um, and they're working on their cars. There's a reason, you know, they're not just parking there for, you know, for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you start, you know, having like car, wrecked cars on your lawn, um, then I'd like to see people out, you know, welding and making art out of them rather than just accumulating them, you know? You know, my my grandmother passed away about three years ago and she left me her car and it's a 2005 Nissan Altima. I take good care of it. It runs fine. But a day's going to come when it's just gone, you know? And um, there's something to her spirit in it, in that car. So my grandmother was a very heavy smoker 
And when we first got the car, every time uh, my wife would try to get in, the car door would kind of shut on her. And she was having a lot of weird things when she would try to drive it. It would, you know, mal- something would malfunction or the air conditioner would kick off or whatever. And so I gave her a cigarette because at the time I was smoking cigarettes. And I said, just take this out to the car and leave it in the dash. Ah, an offering. And, then, and an offering. So she did that. She did exactly that. And never had a problem with the car since. I'm like, yeah, just give something to grandma and you'll be fine. But that is what you said about turning it into art. I, I couldn't see myself getting rid of this thing. You know, it kind of feels like the last bit of... You know, I have my grandmother's rosary from her first communion and I have, uh, you know, pictures of her and things like that. But that car, you know, sort of still smells of her and things like that. So I was thinking about using its pieces to make some sort of garden or something like that, like taking the car apart and making making a piece of art or a garden or something like that. Well, that's a great outsider artist, magical instinct. I I think you should, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the the materials that you use to make the art are just as important as the finished product itself. You know, like people used to use red ochre for their for their bodies and for those early cave paintings and stuff like that. And there's something about that the red dirt, the red ochre that's kind of like blood. You know, it's the earth's blood. And I could see the magical significance of, for example, you know, finger painting a successful hunt in the earth's blood. Once again, that feels metaphorically correct. Well, you know, that I think that goes back to a very ancient idea where, where metaphor was not some sort of distanced, you know, point of removal from physical reality. It was a direct expression of it. It's really only been historically that we've moved to the idea of, oh, that's only metaphor, you know? What mm-hmm. a weird idea, mm-hmm. you know? Um, that's not that's not the way that started, you know. It started as a direct magical expression within a certain frame of reference. You know, they people didn't the cave the great paleolithic cave painters didn't go, well that that's an antelope. Literally, mm-hmm. they said that's an antelope mm-hmm. magically, you know? Right, right. And there's and there's no problem kind of understanding that. You know, yeah, the things that you make things out of are very important, you know, and the things that you create, I think it it makes me think actually of writing, which is sort of like the business of metaphor, once again, being inextricably tied to magic in its own way. You know, every time we make a metaphor, we're essentially sort of slipping in and out of that more uh, primal way of thinking that people are used to. You know how sometimes metaphors don't make literal sense, but they, when, when you have an author, you do this a lot and I love it, an author who's, who's really good, um, you can't necessarily explain why a metaphor works, but it just feels right. It's like, yeah, that feels correct, you know? Well, I think that connects to, you know, to the visual arts and to music, you know, where the experience is psychologically and emotionally uh, valid and correct. It, it it doesn't necessarily have to work in a logical, thematic sort of way. You know, it's a much mm-hmm. purer and more direct form. And I mean, think of you know the uh, the outsider artist James Hampton. Yeah, I, do, yeah. I mean, okay. Here's an African American janitor who is unquestionably uh, diagnosable in 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 psychological mental health terms. 
But imagine mm-hmm. the experience of finding the throne of the third heaven in his very, mm. very humble apartment. I mean, he yeah. made it out of aluminum foil and salvaged mm-hmm. light bulbs. I mean, to me, that would be like the looking into you know, one of the Egyptian pyramids for the first time. People were just blown away, you know? I mean, the sacredness and the intimacy uh, and the personal mythology blending with executional physical art by hand that very few Mm -hmm. people in in art graduate schools are capable of, you know? Amazing, amazing, humbling, humbling. Yeah, well, when you look at it, there's um, there's a there's an, an element of like Angkor Wat or something to it when you see it. You know, it's it's this just very intricate with these kind of spires and angels' wings coming off of it. And apparently, also there were pages of text that were found with it. Um, I didn't look too much into those, but apparently there's sort of these religious texts. So this was a guy who had. A vision, and if I remember correctly, he was a cook, right? He was a cook who lived in DC. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, um, and then he was also a janitor. That's where he got a lot of the stuff. But yeah, I mean, basically, cook, very humble, low okay, level, yeah. you know, manual work. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, and then and so it's it go it go kind of goes back to this thing of the people who are given these transmissions. Like this is a guy who. You know, I didn't know him personally, but I, I have a hard time believing that he had any sort of personal stake in becoming an artist with a capital A. He was transmuting the metaphors that were in his mind into this piece in his apartment that uh, when it was finished, it was really quite something. Yeah, quite very. It's, that's the kind of stuff that I like. It's like art without expectation, right? Again, exploring without expressing. Um, I think that this one, this piece kind of fits that. It's, it, it absolutely does. And there is a pattern across these, you know, the, the, the individuals that we call outsider artists and the, uh, the term I, I like, which uh, is visionary art, I, I think that's better than outsider art in a way because I think it expresses uh, the, the internal workings of, of these very eccentric, uh, idiosyncratic all just absolutely committed artists who were not doing this for any money or recognition or, I mean, that was the last thing on their minds. They were, um, there's a wonderful, um, a Ukrainian Canadian, uh, guy named William, uh, Kurulik who, uh, created a, a work called the maze and he did it in an okay. asylum, you know, under the worst possible conditions. It makes me think of, uh, the Malcolm X piece, A Homemade Education, of where he taught himself really to, to read and write in, in, mm. in prison, you know, the worst possible environment. But uh, Krillick said he was trying to paint the inside of his skull, you know? Mm. And, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of artists would say that, but, I mean, they would be saying it metaphorically. He, he meant it quite seriously, you know? Yes, yes. And there's a, there's a, I'm looking at it now, there's a fetus right in the middle of it too. Great. Which is very interesting. It's, it's, there's like that, that center that everything sort of like spins around from that. It's a, it's almost like a dollhouse. Right. 
looking thing with these different scenes in it. Yeah, that's a fascinating piece of art. I encourage anybody who's listening to this to check that out. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, and it makes me think of, you know, the artists that I know and have known in the past. I knew a, there was a woman who made stuffed animals, these little stuffed monsters, and she didn't really do much else. I'm not sure how, she, I'm sure she, she survived off of some kind of, you know, welfare or what what have you, but she was a very great seamstress and she would make these little creatures and usually give them away. And there was this uh, time that she was sewing a Batwoman costume for my wife and I was tasked with going to pick it up. So I went to pick it up and I, I go into this woman's apartment and there's just stuffing everywhere and different pieces of cloth and different monsters and different states of construction and she's a very small woman with orange hair and the kind who like shakes while she smokes a cigarette, right. you know, uh, just mm-hmm. like a, like a little, uh, like a little cat, like a hairless cat. Right. Um, and we're in the apartment and we're shooting the shit back and forth, smoking cigarettes and the door opened and this, uh, obese white woman in a trench coat, like a silent Bob trench coat with face tattoos walks in and I look at her and I say, I think you... I think you were in the wrong apartment. And she looks just as frustrated as we do. And she kind of waves her hand around and she says, well, they told me to come here. So I'm here now. They told me to come here. So now I'm here. And I sort of ushered her out the door and I said, okay, well, thank you for coming. Right. Um, But that woman reminds me of the guy who I mentioned in our very first episode, the guy who was in the street. And it kind of makes me wonder what is it that these people are hearing that's taking them to these different spots, right? They, they can't explain it either. Well, you know, that makes me think of, remember uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which is a great African novel, but it's also the title of uh, a Brian Eno, David Byrne album, which was very, very, po- it's still a great album today. But uh, one of the more uh, sinister but compelling pieces on that, it's, it's an interesting mix of, of found sound, found voices, uh, that they put together. But there's a great line that I really love. It's, we will appear for you from time to time. You know? <laughs> it's yeah, like, that's great. wow. That's wow, great. that's a, that's a prom- you know, that's where promise and threat join hands, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah, I wonder, yeah, it just makes you kind of think, like, was that also a transmission <laughs> Was that something that, how much of stuff that you put into a book or stuff that you put into a piece of music, how much is, you know, because we have this thought of, I invented that. I came up with that. It just came, but it it doesn't, does it? It comes from somewhere. But I wonder where that where even is. Well, that is the that is a magic question. That is a very, you know, no other realm of human endeavor I mean, science, philosophy, nothing else answers that question. I mean, that's that's in the magic realm. Uh, but mm. you know, your guy in the street remind. I, I, I meant to. I hadn't. I haven't told you about this. Um, there's this black dude who's you know very. He's obviously homeless, and he's obviously on the schizophrenic spectrum somewhere. And he's recently mm. appeared around the neighborhood. I've seen him like two or three times. And he looks a little scary. I I do admit that. But he's joyful. He's absolutely joyful. And he comes out with these great, strange lines. 
And his, his catch cry, if you like, which just makes me laugh, is, and I don't know who he's talking to. Uh, he's talking to the world, you know. He, he's, he's got his own podcast, you know. <laughs> but his catch yeah. cry is, come on, man, this is the 90s. <laughs> and, you know, I think some of my, you know, a couple of people, I think, sort of freak out. But I sort of go, well, you know, maybe this is the 90s. Maybe this, you know, yeah. maybe we're all wrong, you know. But nice, I, I kind of right. dig him. Yeah. And his other thing, which I think is hilarious. Remember, this is in Vegas. He, uh, he has a cardboard sign, which is kind of a homeless tradition, right? But, but mm-hmm. he's actually got good printing. It kind of looks like he stenciled it almost. And his line mm. is, free advice about mm-hmm. gambling addiction. <laughs> and addic- Have you ever asked him? Well, you know, I, I really want to, ch- I, I want to, I wanted to actually, uh, I feel a little guilty about wanting just to take a photograph without really engaging with him. But I will point mm-hmm. out that addiction was correctly spelled and he has mm-hmm. much better printing than I would ever have. And that would be at home yeah. with, the, with all of the cool art stuff, you know. He's somehow making that happen out on the street. And up until, well, even now, even today, it's been pretty damn hot. And uh, I don't like the the idea of of being outdoors all the time in that heat. So, you know, here's a, here's another one of these people who is kind of at the lowest rung of society, and yet is showing some great survival skills and tremendous inner poise. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think real soul. You know, we talk about soul. Well, you know, it's easy to sort of have you know be soulful when you're in a recording studio and you've got all, you know, a lot of cool instruments around you. It's a little bit harder when you're acapella, you know, out on the street, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe you haven't eaten in a couple of days, you know? So right. next time I see him, I'm going to engage. And I, I don't know, it, it's always difficult to know how much help to provide. You know, it, you just, you got to look at that yeah. carefully. And, yeah. you know, those, those people are volatile. There's no, that's part of the, you know, the deal. Um, but mm-hmm. anyway, just, you know, there, there are these bodhisattva outsider visionary artists surviving people that I, I think you agree we need to sort of have a little bit more respect for, you know? Yeah, totally. And I think that anybody who thinks that either I or you on this podcast are sort of romanticizing the homeless, I, I think that that's far from the truth. I've had plenty of run-ins living in Portland with people who were less than savory. I was outside of a bar once and um, smoking a cigarette yet again. It's how you get into all the trouble. <laughs> smoking. Um, and uh, Rios was doing a reading in the bar and I was taking a break. And the, the, a guy walked past me talking to himself. He had uh, you know, an M&M haircut, right? So the white bleach blonde kind of look. And he sort of throws himself onto the ground in front of me and starts hitting his head on the sidewalk. And then he looks up at me with blood running down his face and he makes eye contact with me and he says, you. And I said, oh boy, here Mm -hmm. we go. I don't know. I don't know who he's seeing. I don't know who I'm supposed to be right now, but I am somebody who he is not fond of. And so he gets up and he gets in my face and I'm freaking out a little bit because you don't want to get the blood on you, you know? 
Um, and then the bouncer for that bar just intervenes, scoops the guy up and tosses him into the street. And the guy stands up and he goes, you're all a bunch of bullies. You're all bullies. And the, the bouncer goes, uh, yeah, man. I mean, that's why they pay me. <laughs> I thought that was a great line. <laughs> that is a great line. And listen, I, I absolutely <laughs> second your point about, you know, we're not romanticizing these people or that's not the only approach here. I, I absolutely uh, agree that, you know, there's a there's a dangerous element and not all these people are, uh, you, you know, interesting, you know, creative, uh, cool, funny people. Some of them are, you know, on the streets for reasons and some of them are, are really, truly dangerous. I uh, where I used to park at the university when I was teaching um, is, is a real uh, area of homeless people. And I, I even in, in the morning, you know, in the bright sunlight, you know, uh, mid-morning, I would be super careful about looking around before I got out of my car. Because one day when I was a little bit distracted, uh, this guy just, I, he came out of nowhere. Um, he'd been, you know, sleeping behind this dumpster and uh, he just clocked me, you know, I don't, you know, mm-hmm. no reason. Uh, he didn't try to rob me. Right. And, um, the, you know, as soon as I realized what was going on, he, he ran off. He didn't want to engage further. But, you know, no idea, you know, no explanation, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, you, you can't turn your, you know, Hunter Thompson said you can turn your back, you know, on, on people sometimes, but you can't turn your back on a drug. And, and oh, I like you know, that, yeah. and, and these, you know, we're talking about internally synthesized drugs at least, but maybe also, you know, who knows what drugs. So, yeah, you, you, we don't want to romanticize these people, but on the other hand, uh, we don't want to dismiss them either. Just say, well, they're dirty people out in the street because, you know, yeah. everyone. I think that that's I think that's exactly what we're trying to do is that we already know what the kind of status quo belief of these people are. And we're not ignoring that. We're going to stay with that trouble and not dismiss it, but suggest that there's a little bit more to it than just they're icky and gross and should be avoided at all costs. I was thinking about either or stuff earlier and I thought I was thinking to myself, why is it so hard for people in this day and age to kind of hold conflicting thoughts that they that they understand are conflicting in their heads, you know, because I I get a lot of heat online uh, from people because I, I tend to sort of espouse opinions that are not of the current moment. It feels like especially on social media, you have to sort of follow a script or you're you are. X, Y, Z, you're this thing or that thing or whatever. And I thought to myself, you know, why do I have sympathy for some of these people who are persona non grata in today's, you know, sort of liberal social scene? And I think it comes from having been addicted to drugs and having a deep kind of period of self-loathing. I don't have self-loathing anymore, but if I could hate, you know, myself that much, but still find enough value in myself to live my life and to, you know, reform and, and to do all these kind of things. Why would, why would I not give that to other people? You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand how, how people can be this kind of dense about this kind of stuff. Well, you know, the way I think that, I think there's, there's a history, certainly in the Western tradition, which, you know, the Aristotle subject object dichotomy that has stayed with us and haunted us Talk about a spirit is haunting Europe. You know, it's haunted us our whole time. But, I mean, what do you think about, you know, the zero and one of the digital era? I mean, the more connected 
a civilization or society, let's say, is to uh, digital technology. It seems to me the more uh, either or, cut and dry, uh, my way or the highway sort of thing. But I love that idea of there being a kind of binary nature to the internet itself and that that fundamental stuff of it somehow can only really create more binaries. That's fascinating. Well, I think it is really true. And I, I there's a figure that I know that you admire, Terrence McKenna. Uh, if listeners are not familiar with Terrence McKenna, uh, rather, than, I mean, he, he's, he was a great writer, um, but, you know, he was a great ethnobotanist and a, a huge proponent of uh, psychedelics and a great expert on psychedelics. Um, but he was a visionary uh, public intellectual of great humanist value that the best way I find to connect with him is to hear his voice. There's quite a bit of material available for free on the Internet. I personally recommend uh, hearing his, uh, his lectures uh, live rather than um, reading his, his work just on the page because his voice is wonderfully eccentric but so articulate. Wouldn't you agree, David? Oh, 100%. I love the Esalen lectures. Um, uh, and his ability to go in there, as far as I understand it, with no notes and receive questions from the audience and r- freestyle. He's a freestyle jazz musician, basically, who can just move from topic to topic to topic. He's what I call a, you know, he's like a systems thinker. He's somebody who's able to put these things together in a way that's really kind of fascinating, um, which I value so much more than uh, sort of myopic scientism, where somebody will become an expert in, I don't know, microbiology or something. And I would think to myself, okay, that's great. I'll go to you if I have a question about protozoa or something. But what I really value are people who can dabble, who can get the gist of things, can sort of understand things, and then synthesize them together in big ways. Because that's the way that's the way we're going to move forward. You know, if you think about it, like experts are they're good worker bees. I would be a terrible worker bee. Uh, if I if I was tasked with working in a lab somewhere to create a vaccine for something. Uh, I would not be able to do that, but I would understand, you know, sort of the broad picture of what was going on and could perhaps help in in that way. But to get back to Terrence, that's what he was so good at. You know, he's, he's famous for saying that uh, that the mushroom, the psilocybin mushroom is an alien intelligence, which is such a far out, interesting idea uh, that you couldn't get if you were somebody who was, you know, Maybe Paul Stamets would do it, the famous mycologist. But if you're just a, a mycologist on the, who's just interested in the sort of cataloging of different types of mycelium, you'd never make that connection. Right, right. Well, you know, he had that, that he, you know, one of his key, his key theory, I suppose, is that uh, the discovery of, of psychedelic uh, biological compounds really was the, the key uh, instigator of human evolution. Uh, you know, it really opened the brain, the, uh, the psychedelic ape idea, you know, which I think is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had, he was also a great hopeful believer in, in the possible power of the internet and the digital revolution. But he was also right. deeply concerned that it could resolve itself back to being 
a reinforcement of binary thinking as opposed to a liberation, you know, from it. Mm. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's a that was a really important insight because you know, he tragically died, you know, when when things were really just beginning to get rolling. Um, and I, I wonder personally what he would think of of what's happened today uh, with the internet mm-hmm. and social media. He was looking at it so right. optimistically as really a, a force for for good and for unification potentially. Um, not that he was unaware of the possibilities of, of further division. Um, he was certainly concerned about class and access to uh, you know more emergent forms of technology, but. That contrast between, you know, the the binary restrictive elements of the internet and new technology, say, because all of it's driven by, you know, the zero-one dichotomy, um, versus the powerful liberating, you know, qualities. And he related that back to, you know, the, the psychedelic drug issue, which I think anyone who's had experience with psychedelics can, can really relate to, that there is... You know, fundamentally, and in, in world culture terms, they have been treated in very sacred, ceremonial, magical terms. And that's how they work. But when you degrade that, when you take that back to a very secular, mundane, quotidian, or even addictive sort of use, you know, you get immense social problems. You don't get vision. You don't get art. You don't get open experiences of other dimensions of reality. You get uh, criminality, insanity, um, just hopelessness, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that is definitely a topic that is so big that we should actually probably pick up with that next time because I have so many thoughts about what you're saying about, you know, the intentions that you bring to any action, particularly in the psychedelic realm, being so important uh, to actually get something out of a journey. So that's something that I want to talk about. But, you know, I think on Terrence's point about, you know, the internet, I think that it, I think that it could still be utopian if we do something about the social media problem, right? If we break things into smaller message boards, like they used to be on the Usenet boards or something like that, where people who were obsessed with the film Terminator 2 could all go and talk about Terminator 2 together and, you know, have their arguments and things like that. What social media has done is basically uh, created a vector for narrative in this society that people either have to conform to or suffer the consequences on both sides, on the left and the right and in the center. You know, you're a bad libertarian if you don't follow these sort of libertarian ideals. And so, it becomes a machine that is constantly discoursing and finding new ways to push people to, to for people to prove their their loyalty to the cause, you know. And that's the major problem. We have to get we have to stop expressing so much on social media and get back to exploring. Well, you know, I think the the, the issue that that he kind of he doesn't quite articulate fully, but I think that. Uh, you and I have talked about it at, at various points is, you know, the issue is access to technology. We've seen that in this, you know, this virus age about, you know, who, which students have access to technology. And, uh, you know, that expression, well, are you online, you know? Well, 
I mean, to me, that the problem with that is online has a very rigid, narrow meaning in terms of, well, access to the internet. Um, but you and I have talked about, you know, there was, there must have been a pre-language period of human development, which was virtually sort of telepathic or sort of ceremonial, the dance language of beasts, as James Dickey said. Mm. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a different kind of online. There isn't just one online. I mean, that's a really uh, restrictive, you know, that, that's not liberating. That, that's very weird. I mean, yeah, if you get online, you've got access to all sorts of websites and you can get shoes delivered and your food delivered and you can get an uh-huh. educational degree. <laughs> but, it, but it's still a channel. It's control of a channel as opposed to an open pirate radio approach to the world. And um, I was thinking of, uh, you know, when I, uh, I wrote a book called, you know, Reverend America, and I um I was going through a lot of, uh, of personal issues when I, when I wrote that, and I was thinking about my uh, religious upbringing. My father was a, was a minister, uh, at least in the start of my early childhood. Um, so I was thinking about those things. But um, to go back to our, our people in the street, your guy in the street, I walked past uh, this guy who, um, I was downtown in a city, and uh, this fellow had constructed this wonderful sort of cyber universal communicating helmet out of stuff he'd found out of a trash can. But my mm. God, it was a beautiful thing. It just looks so cool. And he was talking mm. to, you know, he, he started off talking to a stockbroker, you know, he was putting, you know, he was doing all this sort of businessman sort of stuff, you know, and then he right. breaks that off and starts singing. And I'll be damned if he didn't have a beautiful tenor voice. I mean, he was he was mm. just on key, and it just sounded great. And this actual businessman, who probably had just been talking to his stockbroker, walks past, and in one of the best moments of human connection I've ever seen spontaneously, he starts singing too. And he must have been in the mm. choir. He certainly had some, some musical training. And they're harmonizing. I mean, here's one guy in, you know, maybe not a $5,000 suit, but a more expensive suit than I've ever worn. And here's a guy who's in some ragged St. Vincent de Paul coat with this crazy helmet earpiece thing he's made. And they're singing together. And that, that kind of, although I don't mention that in, in the novel, that, that was kind of an inciting moment for me that I thought... That's what really being online might mean. You know, there's a whole bunch of people who will never mm-hmm. get online, mm-hmm. you know? But, right, but right. you know, maybe they're online in a bigger way, <laughs> you know? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Does no, that make no, sense? No, I love that. Yeah, and I, it totally makes sense. And, I, you know, when you think of online... Again, I, I just I can't help but think of you know pieces of dirty laundry on a line, nice. you know, just kind of strung strung up there, you know. Um, but I think that all the things that we've talked about with the people of the street and stuff like that, and then you you brought up Reverend America. Funny story, I have been going to my friend Eric's art space downtown, which is about a five minute walk from me. And before I left this town for Portland, I had left a bunch of my books in this art space as a kind of free public library. 
And one of them was Reverend America, which I would not have done if I had known that it was going to go out of print quite unexpectedly. That surprised me. Me too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You most of all, for sure. But I think it's one of the books, I mean, my favorite is Private Midnight, but I think it's one of the books that captures your speaking voice the best. And so I'd actually like to end the episode with a with a passage from the very beginning of the novel, if that's all oh, right. Oh, I'd appreciate you. hearing that. Well, Okay, so this is from the first chapter, and it's called Now We Are Engaged, which oddly fits with the online thing, doesn't it? Um, It does indeed. Seen from a distance, fence stringer gate, battered knapsack, faded jeans, caterpillar cap, close-cropped hair. At close range, a scary white, certainly very white drifter, One who's known the phlegm and dandruff of others, scabies cleanser, sour milk farts of men who haven't changed underwear in a month, buck-tooth women whose yeast infections give off a palpable scent, and worse. Here's a man who's done work you wouldn't last a day doing. Ever pick grapefruit in 110 degree heat? Or punch the charge gun into a pig skull as they come down the concrete chute? Many people know there are towns in Kentucky called Soft Shell, Dwarf, and Monkey's Eyebrow. Some people have been there. A shadow escaped from a body, a crossroads man.